And somebody want to open us up in prayer? All right, let's go for it. Dear God, I thank you for everything you do for us and for loving us and dying for us and for all God. And giving us a, a second chance and a hope of a future with you, God. And just uh, ask that you would uh, lead us today and guide and direct us and help us to, to soak up your word and learn more. And yeah, I pray for the many other uh, churches scattered across your world, God, that are serving you. Bless each one in this crazy world. We love you. Amen. I've been listening to a couple of missionary books this week about different missionaries in different parts of the world. And it's kind of convicting we get stuck in our own church and don't even realize that there are tons of other churches going through really difficult struggles. Um, they're talking about the effects of obviously the soldier, but the effects of communism and um, how the the communist movement just kind of took over the the church, and they would implant their own pastors, and it was just wicked and evil, and makes us or makes me thankful that we live here, but makes me feel guilty that we don't think about other churches nearly as often as we should. So. China's doing today. Yeah. Yeah. It's terrible, sickening, but um, the gates of hell will not prevail, so that's good. All right, we are going through our soteriology. What is soteriology about? The study of? The Savior. Close. Salvation, sorry. Salvation, yeah. Christology is the study of Christ. And soteriology is the study of his work of salvation. And we've been looking at regeneration last week. What is regeneration to be generated again? Regeneration. Renewed? Yeah, it's a renewal of rebirth. We looked at John chapter 3, how Jesus told Nicodemus, unless you were born again, then you will in no way inherit the kingdom of God. Or something to that effect. I think that makes a couple verses there. But yes, regeneration is rebirth, renewal. Um, and then we talk about baptism. Um, what is spiritual baptism and how does that relate to regeneration? To be baptized in the spirit. What does baptism mean? Be covered under God. Yeah, to be part of, of him, right? So I talked last week about how whenever I... Whenever you hear the word baptism, I want you to think of identification that we are identified with. So there are several different baptisms in the Bible. Uh, speaking of spirit baptism, we are identified with Christ through the Holy Spirit. That He brings us into the body of Christ. He baptizes us into the body of Christ, and we are identified with Him. That's a, an aspect of that regeneration, to be reborn into Christ. And this morning, we're going to be talking about several other ministries of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about these a little bit when we were going through, bless you, when we were going through pneumatology, uh, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. So there's a lot of overlap here, how the Holy Spirit works in our salvation. So we've looked at some of these before. Um, it's always a good thing to go back and to review, and that's pretty much what it's going to be because um, we see these same aspects of what the Holy Spirit does in our salvation. So we're going to 
look at that this morning, starting off with ceiling. Um, I better click on that to make it work. Maybe. All right, so talking about the sealing of the Holy Spirit, let's look at 2 Corinthians 1 and Ephesians 1. Go ahead and turn your Bibles and we'll look at those together. 2 Corinthians 1, and we'll look at verses 21 and 22. Somebody want to read those for us, please? Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. All right. What a great verse. He gave us the Spirit of God as a pledge or as a down payment. We've talked before about how um, it can be viewed as a, an engagement ring. How when a man gives a woman an engagement ring, it's a pledge, a down payment, uh, making a promise that, yeah, I'm going to come back and um, I'm, I'm looking for more and I'm promising more, right? This is just a, a promise of what's to come. And that's pretty much the same word here for pledge that the Holy Spirit is to us in our salvation. And then Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Somebody have that one? You got it. All right. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. All right, same concept there. Uh, Holy Spirit is given as a promise, as a pledge of our inheritance. What we as adopted children of God will have to look forward to. Um, we have right now, currently, presently with us, the Holy Spirit of God. Um, we've talked about before how that's different now from how it was in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit um, would come and go upon people. And we'll look at that a little bit in... Our, our next section on indwelling, but um, we have been sealed permanently with the Holy Spirit. We are in Him, uh, and nobody can do anything about that. God seals the believer at the very moment of belief, and the Spirit is given to him or her as a first installment of the inheritance that God has set an airtight locked seal on the Christian. So it's Him putting His stamp on the Christian saying, you are mine, and um, you have this promise of more to come. Ephesians 4.30, still in the same book. Those are the two um, verses that I remember most easily about being sealed in the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 and Ephesians 4.30. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And so here we see that this indicates the timing of the sealing, that in his or her regeneration, the Christian is granted God and will never ever lose him. That is a great thought, uh, especially if you're struggling with your assurance of salvation, if you just get so bogged down in your own sin, which is so easy to happen to us. Um, and there are some that have a, a particularly hard time getting over their sin. They're just so, their conscience is so soft, which is a good thing um, in a lot of respects, but then they have a hard time thinking 
that God can actually save them, that they are redeemable. Even really solid, mature believers. I know several believers who are uh, way more godly than I could ever hope to be, and they have a hard time with their assurance of salvation because they have such a, a soft conscience, and so they'll sin in um, what we might consider minuscule, minor ways, something that is very common to man. And then they'll think, well, how can I possibly be in Christ because I've done this or this? And looking at a verse like this, it says that um, we are sealed for the day of redemption. That can bring a lot of relief to realize that uh, we have a future day where we will be redeemed. And we have been given this pledge, this down payment, this promise of the Holy Spirit until that day. We are unable to seal ourselves. We are also unable to unseal ourselves. Um, this goes right along with several other passages that talk about how we can't take ourselves out of the hand of God. Nobody can take ourselves, can take us out of the hand of Christ. Um, nobody can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, right? That includes us. And in the same respect, we cannot unseal ourselves from the Holy Spirit. If we thought that we could, then we'd be granting to us just as much power as God himself has. Yes, Andy. So, talking about the, you know, in Calvinism it's called the, what is it, the persistence of the... Perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints, right? Um, but, in essence, the inability to lose your salvation, mm -hmm. right? As it resting on us. <clears throat> Isn't, I think, what makes this so challenging to Christians, the fact that there's a portion of Christianity that believes that there's such a thing as a carnal Christian, and there's, you, you see what I'm saying? In other yeah. words, I mean, it, it's, it's clear in my mind that if God has me, no one can take me away from him. No one. Yeah. Not even myself, because I, it wasn't me that put myself there in the first place. Right? Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, and that's why there's the, it's a, a subtle distinction between the way that Calvinists will present it, perseverance of the saints versus once saved, always saved, or eternal security. Because that kind of places more of the emphasis on the believer saying that, well, once you are saved, um, like you said, it's more of that antinomian view, that free grace, I can do whatever I want um, because God has promised me this gift and I can kind of take it, take it and trample it underfoot and do whatever I want um, because it's it's mine. I'm going to hold that against him. He can't, he's not a God that he can, or a man that he can lie, right? Or a son of man that he should repent. So he's promised me this grace and this eternal life, so I'm going to keep it. But in reality, when you're looking at the, the perseverance of the saints, what we're looking at is the promise of God that he is faithful, but because he is faithful, he will carry us through to the day of salvation, right? That he has sealed us until that day of redemption. And so the I think the the emphasis is slightly different. Looking at God's um, faithful promise versus our our future hope, I guess. Well and I think I think for me the reason that I tend more towards the perseverance of the saints is because it emphasizes God's sovereignty. Yeah. And man's inability to save himself, mm -hmm. you know, and, and the other way around, it seems 
that man is, has a higher place than what the Bible seems to indicate, at least. So, anyway. And okay. next week we're going to get into sanctification, and so that's going to get a little bit, uh, maybe not messy, but difficult to understand because sanctification does have a, a joint effort from God and the believer, but it's all in the power of God. So I think a lot of people will look at their own inability and their own shortcomings and they'll reflect that onto their their justification. Well, Anybody else have something? Go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, I was just thinking that, you know, there are some very dark places that I was at as a Christian mm-hmm. that I had a sin that was had a hold of me, so to speak, habitual sin, and it was, I was never comfortable there, ever, which was reassuring yeah, and, and alarming at the same time, right? Because God's Spirit was, you know, it was like, you, you just, no, you just can't, you can't stay here. This is, this is not a good place for you to be because you're being disobedient to me, you know? Yeah, conviction of sin is a good evidence of Amen. salvation. Amen. Jerry? Well, I also have a lot of had in the past, a lot of stress trying to come to terms with some of these things and certainly the security of the believer. But I think our human problem is we want to focus on too narrow a part of truth and ignore the other part. And certainly when you talk about the people that say are are depending on the security of the believer, the eternal security, and still feel they have the freedom or they emphasize the freedom aspect of our newness in Christ there. And we need to keep all as much of that as our brain is capable of the different aspects of that. Certainly one of them is the new creation, the regeneration. Mm -hmm. It's just inconsistent to a big degree to have any kind of um, free to do whatever I want attitudes if indeed you think you've been recreated, regenerated, because those are those are aspects of the dead person, not yeah. the live person. It, it, that should also cause you a lot of discomfort if, in fact, you are regenerated. To, to think that you are free to be utterly self-centered again, it's, it's very inconsistent. But anyway, you, you, can't, you can't isolate any one of these things that make sense because our finite minds are really <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, if we are truly regenerated, then we're going to have that change of heart. We're going to have that heart of stone taken out. We're not going to have a desire to sin, but to rather please God. Um, and in the same way that we can't come to God unless we've had a, a regeneration, a change of heart, because we are by nature children of wrath. If we have had a change of heart, then we won't have that desire to to go back. So we can only we have the freedom as uh, individuals to do that which our our nature allows us to do. We don't have the freedom to go out and fly, just flap our arms real fast and fly, or to dive underwater and stay there for 15, 20 minutes without any breathing device. That's not within our nature, and 
by nature, we are not able to come to God unless he changes our heart. And as new creatures, we are unable to habitually walk in sin without being chastised. Um, every legitimate child will be disciplined by the Father. Look at Hebrews 12 for that uh, discourse on discipline and how he will discipline those whom he loves. Any other thoughts on that great passage in Ephesians 1.13 or 4.30 on being sealed in the Holy Spirit? All right. Ryrie says only two people can legitimately break the seal of a piece of mail, the recipient or the sender, if it is delivered back to him. In the case of believers, God is the sender and God is the recipient. And God is the one who does the sealing. So only God can break the seal. And he has promised not to do so until the day of redemption. So he has sealed us, called us his own. And he isn't going to break that seal. He has promised based on himself not to do so. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Every person who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so all these different aspects that we're looking at, um, they fall under regeneration. We must first be regenerated to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, to be sealed, to be indwelt. All these things come with uh, regeneration. They happen at the, the moment of salvation, at least until we get down to the last couple. These happen at that very moment that we are justified. So we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And as I mentioned a moment ago, that means that he comes and he takes up permanent residence within us, as opposed to the Old Testament where he would come upon somebody and then leave them shortly after. He came upon David. David prayed, God, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Uh, he came upon Saul and left Saul. And then there was a, a spirit of uh, an evil spirit that came upon him and caused him to throw spears after David. And, um, that's not the way that God operates today. The Holy Spirit will indwell a believer uh, for eternity. The Holy Spirit, the infinite creator, humbles himself to indwell finite creature, creation so that he may exalt Christ in the lives of the redeemed. So that is the purpose to exalt Christ and the church of Christ, the bride of Christ, cannot do that unless we have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit because we don't have that ability, that capability on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to be working within us to be able to ultimately honor and glorify Christ. What you thinking there, Andy? Okay. <laughs> you had eyes of, what does that mean? All right, let's look at 1 Corinthians 3, talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We went over this not too long ago in our sermon series. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Can somebody grab that for us, please? I can do it at 3.16. Yes, please. Thanks, Dory. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? All right. God's spirit dwells in you. The temple illustration leaves no doubt that he is in the Christian. He actually indwells us just as he indwelt the, the temple when there was a temple. And then 6, 15 through 20 puts immediate application to this thought. What do we, um, what does that mean? The fact that we are the temple of, of God, that he indwells us to think about how we steward our temple. 
but the the main point is that he actually indwells us, takes up residence within us, um, which again, you stop and think about that. The God of creation who made us has stepped into his creation uh, and humbled himself just as Christ did when he took on flesh. I uh, look at Philippians 2 and that great passage on the humility of Christ, how he uh, emptied himself of all of his glory and he became a man. He humbled himself to the point of becoming a man. The Holy Spirit has done the same thing. Romans 8, 5 through 11, talking about the power that we have from the Holy Spirit. And this is a concept that can go awry quickly if uh, you have poor motives. Many people have taken this concept in verses like these to uh, twist and malign scripture and to really try to gain for themselves. So Romans 8, 5 through 11, I'll go ahead and read that for us. It says, for those who are according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. Again, that talks about regeneration, how if we are truly regenerated, we're going to set our mind on the things of the spirit, if we are of the spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. Again, if we are unregenerated, we're not able to set our mind on the flesh, right? We are, by nature, children of wrath. We cannot do that which is outside of our nature. Verse 8, And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. I'm going to read that verse again, verse 9, and tell me what you uh, notice about verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Anything jump out at you from that verse? Apologetically? That would help you in defending certain aspects of your faith? We don't have the power to do anything. Yeah, we're completely it's dependent upon Him. That changes us and empowers us to um, to believe, to follow, and to um, be changed by it. What what spirit enables us to do that? Spirit of the Lord, not not the spirit of, of uh, our sinful nature. How does verse nine describe the spirit? The spirit of it's just the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. Spirit of Christ. Yeah, it says both the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. So that's a good proof text for the deity of Christ. You see all three aspects of the Trinity, all three persons, not aspects, forgive me, uh, all three persons of the Trinity in that one verse. So that's pretty cool. Um, okay. The last two verses, verse 10 and 11. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, wow, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Romans 8 is an awesome chapter. Um, it's one that I started to memorize once and I didn't finish, but one day, that is a, a good chapter. 
All right, so the spirit wars against the flesh. Thus, there's a battle happening. That's what Paul just got done talking about in chapter 7, how what he wants to do, he cannot do, and those things that he doesn't want to do, he, he does because he still has this, this battle going on. He has these two natures within himself, right? That um, nature we were talking about, which is opposed to God, by nature is a child of wrath, that still dwells within him. He still has that sinful nature that he inherited from Adam, Romans 5, within him. Um, and yet, he's been regenerated. He now has this indwelling Holy Spirit, and these two natures are at war within him. Um, and we see that outlined here even farther. The Spirit empowers a Christian to win the battle against the flesh by granting a spiritual power to overcome sin. That's Again, a, a difficult concept for a lot of us to, to kind of swallow, that the Holy Spirit gives us power to overcome sin. However, that doesn't mean we're always going to do that, right? Every Christian has the ability not to sin, but no Christian is sinless. So kind of a, a paradox there that we can potentially not sin, but we still have this sinful nature which rises up in us which will prevent us from truly becoming sinless until we have been glorified in Christ. So in reality, we're saying that before the Spirit lives in us, we are the enemies of God. We are at war with God. And when the Spirit moves in us, then that war moves within us. Yeah. That's scary. Yeah. And... One day that war will come to an end. He goes on in the rest of chapter 8 and talks about how we are crying, we are groaning. Even creation itself is groaning for this regeneration. And one day we will find it um, when we are glorified in Christ. But until then, we're just groaning. We're just whining, I guess, because we have this battle, this war going on within us. Uh, because, like you said, God has moved into, into us. And we still have this simple nature. Other thoughts on that? Questions? It'd be almost scarier if that war isn't going on in your life. Though. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, if you're just resigned to your sin and you don't have this conviction of your sin, that's. You think you don't have sin. Yeah. And you think, oh, yeah, I'm good. I don't have this problem. And that just means that you're on a, a path to hell. And that is absolutely scarier. It means you haven't read the New Testament. That's what that means. Yeah. Uh, it hasn't taken root within you, and God hasn't changed your life because of it. It's even more scary when you have read and understood the New Testament, you're still unregenerated, and you will take and use that for twisting and uh, perverting Scripture. Yeah. yeah, there are many a, a theologian who knows his Bible much better than I could ever hope to, but he is unregenerate, and so he doesn't have insight, he doesn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit, and he will take the, the clear words of Scripture and make them say something completely contrary to what they actually say. Bart huh? Bart yeah, Bart Ehrman, yeah. yeah. Wouldn't you like to know what Bart Ehrman knows? Wouldn't that be oh just goodness. great to intellectually have his knowledge? Yeah. But I would much rather be regenerated then have all that intellectual knowledge. Yeah. Uh, if you don't have a heart change, then it's, it's pointless, it's useless. Yeah, he's got a, a head full of Bible knowledge, but a heart that's still made out of stone. All right, the previous three 
were acts that God performed apart from our cooperation. That is, baptism, sealing, and indwelling. The next three are not so. The next three that we're going to be talking about are filling, fruit, and gifting. And so filling, fruit, and gifting, there's some aspect of cooperation that we have to um, cooperate in order to, to fully be able to benefit from these ministries of the Holy Spirit. Baptism, indwelling, and what? Baptism, sealing, and indwelling, they're all um, completely works of, of God the Holy Spirit alone. And then filling, fruit, and gifting, these are all works and ministries that are cooperative. All right, so filling of the Holy Spirit. Filling is not the same as indwelling. It's pleru versus oikeo. The latter means to take up residence. The former means to make complete. Brittany, do you remember what oikeo means or oikia? No. No? <laughs> uh, I was working a while ago on um, my Greek vocabulary, and uh, Britt was, she walked in the room or something, and I was... Um, going over Ikea and she said, oh, that sounds like Ikea. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, it kind of does. And it means uh, home or house. And so uh, Ikea means to indwell, to take up residence. Um, and Pleru means to, uh, to fill, to make, make full, I guess. So there's a, a difference uh, going back to the Greek in those two different words. It's not the same concept. Being filled with the Spirit is a key part of sanctification. In order to grow, the believer must rely completely on the Spirit's work. So once again, all of him, right? None of us. Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. Let's look at that. All right, who can read Ephesians 5 for us? Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. We've got a small class today. We have to be more active. You guys are quiet. I'm glad you're here, though, because I'm not. not. Too drunk with the wine. Hmm. That is the salvation. But we filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs, sing and make melody with your heart to the Lord. Always be, always giving thanks for, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. All right. That's yeah, pretty all-encompassing there, right? Verse 20, always giving thanks for all things. Um, we don't do that, right? Uh, but that is what we are, are called to do, to always give thanks for all things. And we are able to do that even partially, even sometimes, because of the filling of the Holy Spirit. What is the Spirit's filling contrasted with here in verse 5? Being drunk. Or chapter 5. Yep, being drunk with wine. So don't be drunk with wine. That's dissipation. But rather, be filled or controlled with the Holy Spirit. So just as alcohol will uh, control you, it will change you, it will take over you, we're to be filled, controlled, taken over by the Holy Spirit. 
Being filled with the Spirit brings about unity, thankfulness, and submission. It is a beautiful thing that uh, really we are passive in. We need to be filled by, by Him. Um, can the Christian act contrary? We've already talked about how we can't do that habitually, right? We have this ongoing battle, and so there are times and moments. Um, we keep going back to First John, First John eight and verse John ten, say that if we say that we do not sin, then the truth is not in us. If we say that we do not sin, then we've actually made God a liar. So we cannot be sinlessly perfect. However, um, that won't be what marks our life. That won't be the the pattern of habitual sin that we are known by. MacArthur and Mayhew say that humans have two choices, to be filled by the flesh in unbelief or be filled by the Holy Spirit in salvation and sanctification. Being filled authenticates one's genuine salvation by allowing God's will to prevail in obedience to Scripture's teaching and the Holy Spirit's direction. So, filled with the Spirit or walking in the flesh. Again, that term walking um, denotes a habitual lifestyle, right? If we are walking in the Spirit, something we do day by day, step by step, moment by moment, then we will not be walking habitually in the flesh. All right, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Any thoughts or questions on filling before we move on to fruit? That verse you quoted about um, man says he doesn't have sin, he calls God a liar, or whatever. Is that couldn't you take that? It's talking about an unregenerate person. Is that after? Uh, no, that's First John. First John is talking about fellowship. First John chapter one. The whole chapter is about fellowship. So yeah, let's turn there real quick and look at that briefly. Let's start in. Uh, verse 5. It says, This is a message that we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. So, yeah, it's talking about how there's this incongruency here. If we say that we're walking with Him in fellowship and yet we walk in darkness, then that's inconsistent. Then we're, we're lying somewhere. Something's not lining up. Verse 7, But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, then we do have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, has cleansed us from all sin. And then verse 8, the one I quoted says, If we say that we have no sin, then we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So, we, even though we have fellowship with God, we will walk in sin. And then, uh, it talks about in verse 9 how to handle that when we do walk in sin. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a, a verse that is often taken and applied to uh, salvation. That was one of the first verses I used um, when I was learning how to present the wordless book in um, Christian Youth in Action with Childhood or Child Evangelism Fellowship. And I think it was misapplied because it's talking about restoring our fellowship with God. We have to make a distinction between relationship and fellowship. My relationship with my wife is that she is my wife, right? That is our relationship. Even if we are fighting or disagreeing or I'm being a jerk 
or you know whatever that's not going to affect our relationship that affects our fellowship quite a bit though and so i need to restore that fellowship with her and apologize and ask for forgiveness and repent um, but our relationship is the same and so this whole chapter is talking about our fellowship with christ in verse 10 goes on and just reiterates once again if we say that we have not sinned not only are we deceiving ourselves but it says that we make him a liar and his word is not in us because he has called us uh, sinners and pointed out the fact that we sin and you go on in chapter 2 verse 1 it says my little children i'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin so even though we are marked by sin even though we can't fully escape sin he says in chapter 2 verse 1 that he's writing these things to us so that we may not sin so again it's this this battle of struggle will never be fully sinless but we can escape sin we've been given through the power of the holy spirit the ability to overcome sin um, in in every single situation but not every ultimate situation right so we're not always going to be sinless but we have the ability to be sinless because we have the indwelling holy spirit does that make sense other thoughts on that this says that there's no carnal christians <laughs> verse eight yep just reiterate no such thing as a carnal christian no such thing as a carnal christian there are such things as Christians who are not filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Um, Christians who are not walking with the Holy Spirit, but um, that shouldn't mark their life, shouldn't be the pattern of their life. All right, the fruit of the Spirit. The new nature that God creates in us at conversion is manifested in a total change of disposition. <clears throat> Though no human Christian What's a, a non-human Christian, I wonder? Um, <laughs> so no Christian will be perfect. There will be indicators of conversion. Where the spirit goes, he leaves evidence of his presence. So once again, we've kind of already hammered on that concept that if we are filled with the spirit, he will manifest himself through us. Um, yeah, it's a, a trip that we are uh, the instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to touch the the world so when it talks about how the holy spirit convicts a world of sin and righteousness and judgment i think the primary way that he does that is through his church um, those who are indwelt by the holy spirit and when we read about the the holy spirit about the restrainer being taken out of the world um, that's why we think that it's talking about the the rapture of the church that the church will be taken away because we are um being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we actually house the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, uh, what a thought. In Galatians 5, 22 through 24, talk about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit singular. Galatians 5, 22 through 24, who's got that? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. All right. And right before this, there was a, a list of fruits of the flesh. And so these are in contrast. Um, all this negative list of the fruit of the flesh being contrasted with these 
uh, great qualities that are the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Remember that the old man is dead. Um, that's kind of what it talks about in verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's not something that uh, carries on like Eddie's pointed out. No such thing as a current Christian because we're not going to have that desire. We're not going to have that um, that want to even sin to trample underfoot the grace of God, which really seems to be the motivation of a lot of the, the carnal Christians that I have at least spoken to. Um, maybe not all of them, but to have that, that ability to give an answer for why we have that, that sinful nature, and it really can become a, a justifying of our sin and a downplaying of our sin, uh, which downplays the, the holiness of God. We've talked before about how to downplay the punishment of sin is to downplay the holiness of God. For a Jehovah's Witness to say that it's not okay for God to forever damn somebody in hell because of their sin is to say, well, God's not that holy because we haven't sinned against that holy of a God that our sin deserves that terrible of a punishment. Just like in Titus 3, we looked at last week, there are marks listing, listed that describe the former self. This passage indicates the new marks that the current self possesses, um, that we will walk in the Spirit. And if we're walking in the Spirit, then we will have the fruit of the Spirit. We will be loving and joyous and peaceful and patient and kind and self-controlled, that we will be manifesting the very fruit that the Holy Spirit himself um, works within our life. The spilling, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? Um, again, it's a constant struggle between the spirit and the flesh. Any other thoughts on fruit of the Holy Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is manifested in the Christian's attitude, actions, worship, speech, and giving. So pretty much every aspect of the Christian will be somehow touched and affected by the fruit of the Spirit. Should we be fruit inspectors? This is a question I left you with last week when we left. What do you think? Should we be fruit inspectors? Yes and no. Expound. Um, there's no sort of uh, spiritual gift of fruit inspection that is me judging your fruit. However, a Christian will have fruit in his life of some size, shape, flavor, something. You know, um, can't, uh, can't have a player coming into the church claiming to be a Christian who's chasing all the gals in the church all the time, and he's doing it with a clean conscience. That's, that's impossible. That, that contradicts the holiness of the God that we profess. Mm -hmm. And by the same token, can't have a, a man who's in the church, um, you know, you, we don't see it, and that's part of the um, 
the true uh, danger of it. Uh, you can't have men who are in the church, who are serving in the church, who are looking at pornography when they're not here. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not okay. It is a sin before a holy God. And while it's something that men struggle with, it's not something that you can have peace with. And yes, we, we must judge fruit at, at some level, especially the elders, right? They, they, they have to be able to, um, you know, it's, it's like we said earlier, where the Holy Spirit has been, there is evidence. Okay, if the, if the Holy Spirit has been in our lives, we cannot be doing the same exact things that we were doing before we were a believer. We can't. That's, that's impossible. If we are, there's a significant problem there. Yeah. Either, either your conversion was false, or you're fooling yourself. There, there's like, you follow what I'm saying? There's no sort of in between yeah. there. It's, yeah, like, it's like there's... being pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. <laughs> you're either a believer or you're not a believer. Yeah. And, and it's the dichotomy. And, and in our flesh, elevating man, we want to, we don't, because there's consequences. You, you tell someone that um, you're not, you know, you're doing X, Y, and Z, you're claiming to be a Christian, and yet you are dragging Christ's name through the mud, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, Kenneth Copeland. Well, seriously, yeah. the, guy, the guy is supposedly a man of God, and he's sitting here and he's defending the fact that he's got a 17 or $20 million house. He flies a private jet. He's, you know, all of these things. He's living on deception of mostly poor people. It's it's sickening. It's disgusting. It drags Christ's name through the mud. Judge his fruit. Absolutely. Yep. He's doing it publicly. His fruit should be judged publicly. And I think there's great wisdom in why God chose <clears throat> this specific word to describe the the outworking of our our deeds, right? The fruit of a believer and the fruit of an unbeliever, the works of a believer and the works of an unbeliever. Uh, because you think of a, a tree and say you just bought a, a house, moved into a new house, you might not, unless you're Laura Kay, know what that tree is until it actually bears fruit, right? Um, unless you have some previous knowledge and you're not going to really know until you say, okay, well, this is a cherry tree or this is a peach or a plum tree or whatever. Um, the fruit will identify what the actual tree is. But um, that's just on the outside. We're unable to look at the inside. Only God knows the heart. Uh, however, it's still important, like you said, from a, a practical standpoint, to some degree um, be able to identify, is this person in Christ or are they not in Christ? Do I need to give this person the gospel um, until they repent, they come to faith, even though they're proclaiming to be a Christian or um, in a, a counseling session, do I need to call upon them to um, to lean on on Christ, who is their king, who is their God, and draw their strength and their power from him. So it has 
practical implications too. This is this is an addendum to what I was saying earlier, but this is more important. Christ Himself judged fruit. He said, "You will know them by their fruit." Mm-hmm. He he was very clearly indicating people who thought that they were Christians, or in his case, the Jewish leaders. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if Jesus was hard on anybody, it was the teachers of the law, right? Because as it should have been. As it should have been, absolutely. And that's that's why it's it's always. We should always be praying for our elders and our deacons because they have, you know, God's going to judge you guys more than he's going to judge us. You come in here and start, you know, flapping about heresy and blasphemy. Yeah. That's a big deal. Yeah, that is a big deal. Yeah. Uh, there's something you got to be real careful on because ultimately we're not God. Mm-hmm. We're human. And so we still think like humans when we're looking at somebody else. And our flesh plays so much into a humanistic way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, okay, you know, there's certain people that have died lately and it's come out after they're dead mm-hmm. about the horrible things. Well, people, in their humanistic way, they might not have been able to see that, but God knew it the whole time. Yep. So even though somebody's matching up to our way of thinking of a godly person, doesn't mean they're godly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Inwardly, they can be ravenous wolves, right? And yeah. we would never know because they're wearing sheep's clothing and they're being deceptive. Um, this, the go-to chapter on this whole thought would be Matthew seven, which is has become the most popular verse in America, probably in the world. Um, Matthew seven one says, "Judge not, lest you be judged." Right? That's everybody's favorite verse. Um, all that's the atheist favorite verse but then it goes on to talk about how you should not cast your pearls before swine well how do you know what a swine is unless you judge to some degree right you have to be perceptive you have to be uh, discerning to be able to judge and then later on in the chapter it goes on and talks about how every good tree bears good fruit a bad tree bears bad fruit and so we need to be wise as uh, a serpent innocent as a dove right trying to figure these things out realizing we can't know perfectly but we still need to be discerning and try to be wise with what we can see only God knows a heart yet all we can see is the fruit the two are inextricably tied we must ask for wisdom often it's good advice all right we'll wrap it up with the gifting of the Holy Spirit at the moment a person believes in the gospel, he or she is equipped with spiritual gifting. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Uh, two main, there are uh, many different views on spiritual gifts, and we will barely scratch the surface today. Remember that Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 are your two key passages on spiritual gifts. And then uh, 1 Corinthians 14 gets into prophecy and tongues as well. But Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 are the two passages to remember when talking about spiritual gifts. I'm going to read these several verses from 1 Corinthians 12. It says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. Lots of gifts, one Spirit. And there are a variety of ministries and the same Lord. And then jumping down to verse 11, 1 Corinthians 12. 
says, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. And then I think it's 1 Peter 4 that talks about how every, <coughs> every believer has a spiritual gift. How are these gifts different from talents and abilities? Well, they are given by the Holy Spirit. Uh, every person has talents and abilities, but spiritual gifts belong only to a Christian. Spiritual gifts are to be performed in love for the building up of the body of Christ. Romans 11.29 says that the gifts of God are irrevocable. That's an important aspect right there, that the gifts are to be for the building up of the body, for the, the edification of the body. You don't use a spiritual gift for yourself. Uh, Paul says that he would rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 unintelligible words in a tongue that is unable to build up somebody else. So think about five words versus 10,000 words. There's not a whole lot you can say in five words, but he would rather take those five words that are able to encourage and build up because that's the purpose of the spiritual gift to, to build up the body, to build up the church. It's not about ourselves. It's about the body of Christ. Spiritual gifts are given to Christians for them to manage. <clears throat> we must exercise good stewardship. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says that whoever has been given a gift must prove faithful. We've all been given a spiritual gift, so we all must prove faithful. We've been given this stewardship. We've been given this trust. And what we do with it is up to us. We need to be faithful with what God has given us. If you're a believer, you're a part of the body of Christ. If you're a part of the body of Christ, then you are essential. If you are essential, then you must use your spiritual gifts in service. That's pretty, pretty blunt, but it's true. Uh, and I think a lot of us aren't doing that. We're not spiritually blessing the body with our, our gifts that God has given to us. Um, Again, it's a stewardship that God has, has given to us. It's something that we will be held accountable for. How we use what God has given us uh, to build up His bride, His church, whom He loves and gave up His life for. Um, it's something that we shouldn't take lightly for sure. John Frame says, Now if you are a believer in Christ, God has given you one or more gifts that the church needs for its ministry. If you are a pastor or other church leader, one of your chief responsibilities is to help your people to identify their spiritual gifts and to then stir up those gifts so that they can flourish in the body. We all need to be using our gifts. Nobody is exempt. We all need to be serving one another in the body. <clears throat> As we close up, is a person regenerated before placing faith in Jesus or repenting of sin? There are definitely different opinions on this, but um, where we would stand is that, yes, a person is regenerated. They are given new life, new birth, the ability to, to be drawn to God before placing their faith in Christ. That we are unable to choose God unless he has given us that desire to choose him. Um, again, there's room for disagreement on this. Some people think that you first choose Christ and then he will regenerate you. He will give you a, a change of heart, change of mind, make you a new person. 
but we would say that you are unable to do that. You don't even have a desire to come to God unless he is giving you that desire first. <clears throat> if the spirit has baptized, sealed, and indwelled you, then why do you still sin, you sinner, right? Um, and we kind of talk about that looking in First John and uh, Romans 7, this battle, this struggle that we have, these uh, two natures that we struggle with. And a lot of people don't even like that terminology, two natures, but we still have the, the sin, sinful man within us that's struggling with the Holy Spirit within us. What sort of expectations should we have for regenerated people? Anybody have a one-sentence answer to that? Biblically realistic. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Biblically realistic. Not they too should lofty. not too what? Not too lofty, but not too easy. Just I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Holy, right? But not too, like you said, lofty. So not expecting that somebody is doing everything that you're not. But not expect that they're sinless. Yes. Yeah, that's good. All right. Well, let's pray.